Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 32, Shell Game. How electrons arrange themselves in atoms is clarified, with consequences for chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. With Rutherford's nuclear model of the atom, chemists began to realize that chemistry was largely how electrons moved around between atoms. And Bohr's model showed, at least for hydrogen atoms and hydrogen-like ions, how those electrons found particular levels at which to remain. What about other elements? If you recall Barclay's research revealing characteristic X-rays emitted from atoms, scientists began to realize, too, that there seemed to be particular arrangements of electrons within atoms. Those arrangements, as Asimov notes, quote, can be visualized as enclosing the nucleus like the rings in an onion, unquote. These onion layers are called shells. The larger the shell, the further away it tends to be from the nucleus, and the more electrons it can hold. Barclay labeled the shells with the obscure terms K, L, M, N, etc. The shell closest to the nucleus, the K shell, only holds up to two electrons. The L shell has a capacity for eight electrons. The M shell can contain up to 18 electrons. The N shell up to 32 electrons. The O shell up to 50 electrons, and so on. For a lithium atom with three electrons, two of them are nearer the nucleus in the K shell, and one resides a bit further out in the L shell. This single L shell electron has an easier time leaving the lithium atom, and so now we have a physical explanation for Mendeleev's periodic table and why lithium is usually found as an ion with a charge of plus one. Sodium, below lithium in the alkali metal column of the table, has two K electrons, eight L electrons, and one M electron. The M shell electron is the one with an easy out. So sodium also is generally found as plus one, for example, in table salt, NaCl. The electrons in the outermost shell generally determine the reactivity of the element. Halogens at the opposite side of the table to the alkali metals have an almost filled outer shell, and they prefer to grab onto some other electron, like from an alkali metal, making themselves into a negative ion. Overall, valence of the element seems to follow well from its electrons' arrangement in shells. In fact, the German chemist Richard Abegg even mentioned this general idea in 1904, noting that the inert gases, which don't seem to react, have a particularly stable electronic arrangement. They do not want to grab or lose an electron like other elements. Sad factoid about Abegg, he was killed when his hot air balloon crashed in 1910 in Cieszyn in what is now Poland. 
This was the era of the newfangled airplane as well as ballooning, so aeronautics was a popular hobby, and Abeg and his wife Lena were both active. He founded and acted as chairman of the Aeronautics Club in the city of Breslau. The fatal flight was caused by the basket of the balloon getting caught in bushes while he was landing, and Abeg was tossed out of the basket. He struck his head and died of a fractured skull. One wonders how he might have contributed more to the understanding of chemical bonding had he lived. With all this, Berzelius's idea of electricity holding elements together from a hundred years earlier, like sodium plus chlorine, Na plus, and Cl minus, began to get clarified. This idea that electrons transfer from one atom to another and hold ions together by electrostatic attraction is called electrovalence. The problem, once again, with electrovalence is that it fails to explain diatomic gases like chlorine, Cl2. How could an atom with a tendency to grab other electrons attract to another grabby atom? Which atom would give up an electron to give to the other one? An American chemist came to the rescue. Gilbert Lewis extended this electrostatic attraction idea. Rather than one atom always grabbing an electron from another atom, he suggested that atoms donate their electrons to an overall group, which the whole conglomeration shares. If two chlorine atoms, each missing an electron from its outer shell, meet, they each grab onto the other's electron and share that pair of electrons between them. This sharing is what chemists call a bond. Up to this time, it seemed that atoms bonded to one another with a mysterious chemical affinity, a term I deliberately left vague. But now that affinity was explained. Affinity is how much atoms grab onto or share electrons with each other and the sharing of electrons is called a covalent bond. Lewis began his idea of a covalent bond back in 1902, before shells or even precise atomic structure was understood. He drew on the back of an envelope cubical diagrams of atoms with electrons at the corners of the cubic atoms. A cube, of course, has eight corners. For the L shell, with eight electrons capacity, Unknown at the time, such a cubical cartoon encapsulated the row of the periodic table, including carbon. If a chlorine atom, say, wanted to gain a full cubical quota of eight electrons, it could share an edge with another cubical chlorine and thus share electrons. This covalency was especially useful to describe organic compounds. Carbon can covalently bond with hydrogen, other carbons, oxygen, nitrogen, and more, all by sharing its electrons with neighboring atoms, and in doing so, get a full shell of electrons for itself. The nearby atoms also get their own full shell by sharing. The molecular structures on paper invented by Kekulé and Cooper were clarified. A short line between atoms for this mysterious bond is now considered to be a pair of shared electrons. For a double bond, 
an atom could share two pairs of electrons. For a triple bond, an atom could share three pairs of electrons, all in the name of gaining a complete outer shell for itself. For inorganic compounds, English chemist Neville Sidgwick added covalent electrons in the 1920s. He applied them to Alfred Werner's structures from decades earlier. Let me also point out that this sharing or non-sharing of electrons results in electrical polarity, a separation of positive and negative charges to a greater or lesser degree in molecules. If a molecule consists only of ions donating or receiving electrons, then that molecule has a clear separation of the positive and negative charge to one side or another. We can also imagine that some atom grabs onto an electron fairly strongly, but not so much as to completely take it over from the next atom, so there is a weaker separation of electrical charge. We call this a polar bond. There can be pure sharing of electrons between atoms, which we can call a nonpolar bond because there is no electrical polarity. Back in the 1910s, this was one major idea chemists were arguing out. The result is that we can even talk of polar molecules in which there is a measurable charge difference from one side of the molecule to the other, and nonpolar molecules where the electrons are shared pretty much equally all over the molecule. To figure out the polarity, you merely add up the electrical polarity and direction of each of the bonds in the molecule. Such polar and nonpolar molecules really do exist. Let's just talk about two. For an example of a nonpolar molecule, we look at the gas methane, or CH4. The four bonds between the central carbon and the four hydrogens are fairly equally shared, and they are symmetrically distributed in a tetrahedron around the central carbon atom. Thus, we have a nonpolar molecule with no electrical charge separation overall. Other hydrocarbons, oils, and similar compounds are also nonpolar. The other example is water. The central oxygen atom between the two waters grabs onto electrons more tightly than the hydrogens, so there is a polarity in the hydrogen-oxygen bonds. It happens that the water molecule is not a straight line, but bent almost into an L shape. Why that is, we will talk about more later when electron paths become better understood in the 20th century. But with this L shape, overall the oxygen vertex of the L is more negative, and the two hydrogen extensions lack electron grabbiness and so are more positive. This means that the water molecule is polar. Other molecules like methanol and ethanol as well as ammonia, are polar to a degree. This polarity has profound physical effects on chemicals. Polar molecules tend to dissolve in other polar molecules, and nonpolar molecules tend to dissolve in nonpolar molecules. The various electrically grabby ends of molecules interact with each other in polar solutions, while the nonpolar molecules don't feel these electrical effects much. So now we understand better why water and oil separate. 
we also begin to sense what's going on when salt dissolves in water. The electrical polarity of the water grabs onto the electrically charged ions in salt and pulls them apart. We now have a chemical idea of ionic solutions. By the time Lewis published his original paper in the Journal of the American Chemical Society in 1916 on covalent bonding, electron shells had been uncovered and Lewis didn't need to rely on his cartoons of cubicle atoms anymore. Of course, there was no good way to depict the sharing of electrons in a triple bond between cubicle atoms anyway. Instead, he wrote that, quote, the atomic shells were mutually interpenetrable, unquote, allowing an electron to, quote, form part of the shell of two different atoms, unquote. The Polish-American physical chemist Kasimir Fajans objected to this idea in that, quote, saying that each of two atoms can attain closed electron shells by sharing a pair of electrons is equivalent to saying that husband and wife by having a total of $2 in a joint account, and each having $6 in individual bank accounts, have got $8 apiece. Unquote. Science historian William Brock also notes dryly that this was the time of Picasso's cubism style in the art world. And so cubes seem to be everywhere, whether in paintings or in chemistry. But the cubicle atom was not active in Lewis's bonding theory anyway by the late teens. The key point here is that atoms can share electron pairs, and this idea is accepted as very common by chemists to this day. After the end of the Great War, or First World War, the American chemist Irving Langmuir, a student of Nernst, who worked at the General Electric Company and beginning formative research in surface chemistry, helped to publicize this sharing of electrons as a bond. By the way, surface chemistry is what I did my doctoral research in. To me, surface chemistry is where the chemical action is at, whether where salt dissolves in water, rust forms on iron, or polluting gases from a combustion engine are broken down on a platinum catalyst. I hope to talk about surface chemistry in a later episode. What Langmuir did with Lewis's bonding theory was to show directly how it followed from electron shells. He first described the electron shells around atomic nuclei, then how getting a stable configuration, at least in the first row of the periodic table, of eight electrons was important for atoms, which he called the octet rule. Then atoms without an octet of electrons shared pairs of electrons or donated or received electrons. Langmuir unfortunately continued to promote Lewis's cubicle atoms, but overall, Lewis's ideas began to gain acceptance at all levels of the chemistry world. Another downside to Langmuir's octet rule was to harden the idea of inertness of inert gases to the point of a natural law, that inert gases can never form compounds. That idea would break down in four decades, but the belief in this law prevented chemists from even considering the issue. And so, in 1923, when Lewis published his book, 
valence and the structure of atoms and molecules, chemists were happy with it. One of the symbols that Lewis introduced was the colon, or two dots, to show a pair of electrons between atoms or next to an atom, which chemists still use symbolically. Notice that electrons are what get shared for chemical bonding in all these cases. Chemistry seems to be electrons and how they move and shift between atoms. The central nucleus of an atom remains safe inside the shells of electrons. But there is an exception here and an important one at that. What happens if you shift an electron away from a hydrogen atom? All you have left is the nucleus with no shielding electron shells. The nucleus of a hydrogen atom is only a proton or a canal ray particle if you speak of radioactivity. The Danish chemist Johannes Brunsted in 1923 took this idea of a bare proton and applied it to acids and bases. Nearly at the same time, British chemist Martin Lowry came up with the same idea. They defined an acid as any compound that easily gives up a proton, a proton donor. They defined a base as any compound that grabs onto a proton, a proton acceptor. This is sort of an acid-base analogy to ions giving up or grabbing onto electrons. The idea, eventually called Brunsted-Lowry acid-base theory, was useful in extending acids and bases to unusual circumstances that could not be explained by hydrogen and hydroxide ions. Not all acids and bases have to exist in water, and Brunsted's and Lowry's view accommodated them. For example, the ammonium ion and some metal cations in water are acidic, while some halogen ions are basic. Brunsted-Lowry acid-base theory, interestingly, only defines an acid with respect to a base. Also interestingly, water can be both an acid and a base depending on its environment. We can write a chemical reaction of two water molecules reacting with each other to make an H3O plus cation, also called a hydronium ion and a hydroxide anion. One molecule of water in this reaction donates a proton as an acid to the other accepting a proton as a base. Chemists call this dual acid-base nature of water amphoteric, from Greek amphi, meaning both. This dual nature of donating and accepting protons becomes especially important in biochemistry in compounds such as amino acids and proteins. Funnily enough, Gilbert Lewis also invented another idea of acids and bases at this time, but only using electrons, apparently his favorite subatomic particle. In Lewis's system, Lewis bases donate pairs of electrons, while Lewis acids accept pairs of electrons. So here, a hydrogen ion H plus is a Lewis acid because it can accept a pair from a hydroxide ion OH minus, and the two ions combine to form water. Even as you and I get dizzy with trying to remember all these definitions of acids and bases and who donates what to whom, 
there are more acid-base theories. For example, the Russian chemist Mikhail Usanovich invented an even more encompassing theory in 1938. That is, an acid accepts negative charges or donates positive charges. A base accepts positive charges or donates negative charges. One example of an Usanovich acid-base reaction is sodium oxide, Na2O, plus sulfur trioxide, SO3, makes two sodium cations, plus a sulfate anion, SO4, 2 minus. Here, the sodium oxide, acting as a base, donates an oxide anion to sulfur trioxide, acting as an acid. There is even an acid-base system used mostly to describe the geochemistry and electrochemistry of liquid salts, that is, hot enough to melt them, not dissolve them. This is a system created by German chemist Hermann Lux in 1939 and added to by Norwegian chemist Håkon Flood after World War II. For the Lux-Flood theory, an acid accepts oxide, the double negative oxygen anion, while a base donates the oxide ion. So you can have the reaction magnesium oxide plus carbon dioxide makes magnesium carbonate. Carbon dioxide is the acid, accepting an oxide ion from the magnesium oxide, the base. There are other definitions too. Acids and bases seem to be all in your chemical perspective. In our next episode, we look at late 19th and early 20th century developments in medicinal chemistry and outgrowth of organic chemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.